in one of Anna Delvey's Anna Sorkin's recent uh, interviews, she says that someone called her a sociopath and she considered it a compliment because the same term has been used about Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg. Hmm. Now, I am fascinated with entrepreneurs for several reasons. One is that they think differently. You cannot create new solutions to common problems without a different way of looking at things. Mm-hmm. You cannot read the label from inside the jar. You have to have an out of the box, out of the ordinary perspective, worldview, and way of solving problems to be able to create solutions that do not exist. Otherwise, someone else would have already thought of them. You think about Elon Musk. He's a fascinating character. He creates ideas and solutions to problems that most humans haven't even thought of. Welcome to the True Fiction Project, a podcast series that explores the origins of fiction. Every week, we begin with an interview, nonfiction, followed by a creative piece, fiction, inspired by something from the interview. The idea is to demonstrate, of course, that fiction is born out of our life experiences. Now, here's your host, storyteller, author, public speaker, health and wellness expert, Renita Hora. This is Renita Hora, and you are listening to The True Fiction Project. My guest today is Diane Wingert. She is a therapist turned mindset coach and host of the Driven Woman podcast. And we have decided to talk about a topic that is very interesting to me, to her, I know, and seemingly to a lot of people out there. It's all about inventing Anna. Hi, Diane. Woo, can't wait to get into this, Renita. Oh my gosh, Anna Delvey, Anna Sorkin, where do we begin? Why is she such a fascinating creature to all of us? Well, first of all, we've all been spending a heck of a lot more time on Netflix these last couple of years as a result of the COVID pandemic. So I think it started with that. I had never even heard of Anna Delvey, Anna Sorokin, Anka Sorokina, which is her actual true legal name, until I saw Julia Garner's photo with the Inventing Anna on Netflix. And I said, oh, that girl we liked so much from Ozark is doing something new. So my first attraction, Renita, was simply because we both loved Julia Garner playing Ruth Langmore on Ozark. And we just wanted to see what she was doing next. Had never at that point even heard of Anna Delvey. But then I got hooked. Oh, my gosh. So you're not the only one in all of America and probably outside at this point. Now, you have a podcast called The Driven Woman. And I have been asking myself this throughout you know, all the episodes, all the time I have been watching the series, which, of course, I binge watched because how could you? Of course. Of course. What is it that drives her? I mean, she's in jail for gosh sakes and she's running an empire outside still. She's controlling it. What is it that drives her? Well, I think this is one of the reasons why inventing Anna and the person whom it is about has captured the fascination of so many people because she's complex, right? She is different. 
She does not blend in. She stands out and she stands out in a really big way. So everyone who is aware of her has an opinion about her. Mm -hmm. They have opinions like she's a con artist. She's a grifter. She's a narcissist. She's a sociopath. And yes, and a criminal. And legally, technically, she is all of those things. But what fascinated me most about her is that she's also a female entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. And because my podcast, The Driven Woman, is for female entrepreneurs, and I identify as a female entrepreneur, I became fascinated with Anna Delvey from that perspective and what we can actually learn from this con artist, grifter, criminal who is also a female entrepreneur, because that's what she wants to be remembered as, not all those other things. In fact, there's a t-shirt on Etsy you can buy that says, I'm not some party girl. I'm trying to build a business. You have raised so many things, and I really want to get into all of them or as many of them as we can. Now, I remember from watching the show that she was very, very keen. And we saw this very early on in in perhaps even the first episode. She didn't want to be portrayed as this dumb socialite. So she wanted to be known for, as you say, her entrepreneurial ability, the the art center that she was building, the art gallery, the, I don't know, competitors of Soho House. Then it seemed like well, you know what, if I can get media attention out of this, it may be good or it may be bad. It doesn't matter. It's attention. Yes. And we'll get into the flaws because we all love flawed characters. And here on the True Fiction Project, you know, we really delve into pun intended, (laughs) pun intended. Exactly. That media attention that 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 she wanted to grab wants to, I think, grab. Is that about her business? Is that about herself? This is such a good question, Renita. And I'm glad that we're doing a deep dive because I don't like superficial things. I think she is a complicated individual. After watching Inventing Anna and becoming sort of captivated by this individual, I started, of course, going down the rabbit hole on the internet and doing all sorts of research. And because I am a former therapist, now coach, the first thing that came to my mind is how did this flawed individual, who is without question brilliant, what was really the driving force behind her? And one of the things that I was attempting to discover is, does this young woman have a history of childhood trauma? Mm -hmm. Was she abused? Did something terrible happen to her? Now, we don't really know the full story. At least I don't know the full story. I wasn't able to determine the full story behind why her parents left Russia and moved to a working class village in Germany when she was a teenager. But what I can say from having worked with many immigrants, and in fact, I'm married to an immigrant who happens to be German, is the age of 16 for a young woman. You remember being a 16-year-old girl. I certainly remember being a 16-year-old girl. I have a daughter. And that's a very difficult time in life to be uprooted and brought to a new place. People don't even want to change high schools, but this girl changed countries. She didn't really speak German. She still doesn't really speak German. We can get into the accent later if you want to, but Mm -hmm. she still doesn't really speak German. And she was in a working class village. Now, already by this point in, in Anna's life, she was obsessed with fashion, Mm -hmm. with art and with the better things in life. Her dad was a truck driver 
who started a healing, heating and cooling company. Now, children are imaginative. On one hand, I want to say many of them are more imagined, some of them or many of them more imaginative than the others. But to an extent, I mean, childhood is really when you imagine, uh, you know, and my mother would always say to me, the more bored you are, the more scope you have for imagination. And I think there's some truth to that. So I'm trying to imagine Anna and what she went through and imagine that she might have been an imaginative child, like many children. Mm-hmm. So if you say, you know, she was already into the idea of fashion and art and these good things in life, let's say the only way she could build that up for her at that early stage was to build it up through her imagination. I mean, mm-hmm. I imagine. <laughs> but then she falls, it appears to me, into this pattern years later, you know, it unfolds that we look at and seems to be along the lines of being a pathological liar. Maybe mm-hmm. she, you know, it has become so ingrained or what? I mean, tell us, help us to dissect this. I don't think it was an overnight transformation. I think that if you piece back through her history, what we know of it, through interviews, through all kinds of op-ed pieces, she had quite an imagination as a young child. She was drawn to the finer things in life. Clearly, her working class family could not provide Mm -hmm. those things, nor, nor was she able to observe those things in her environment. None of the girls at her high school had nice things. Mm -hmm. None of them probably even knew those things existed. But Anna knew that that was the life for her. She knew that. And and I have read biographies of other famous people, celebrities who came from humble beginnings. Many of them, Renata would say the same thing to paraphrase. I always knew this wasn't where I belonged. Mm -hmm. That somehow, you know, most of us, we look at the world around us as this is what it is. We don't question whether there's something more, something better, something different. We, most people, most human beings will continue to live a lifestyle and have expectations that are very close to what they grew up with. But then let's say out of a family of several kids, and Anna only has one sibling, but out of several kids, one of them may say, oh, I'm not, this isn't for me. I'm Mm -hmm. not going to live this small town lifestyle. I'm destined for greatness. And people laugh and think you're just being ridiculous. But she decided early on that she was going to get the heck out of that little town. And she set her sights on Paris. She convinced her parents to fund an education so that she could be where she thought she belonged. And I don't think there's anything the least bit pathological about it up Mm. to this point, because Mm -hmm. many people will say, you know, this is boring. This is so mundane. I I just feel stifled here, especially the highly creative person. So a highly creative child Mm -hmm. with an imagination, as you say, would say, I don't see enough in this environment to feed my creativity, to feed my imagination. I feel stifled by this. I need to go to where creative people are, where creative things are happening. And in her mind, because she was a European, that was Paris. She did go to school in Paris, and she actually was able to talk her way into a job working for a magazine there. And that was all good and fine, and I don't think problematic at all. 
mm-hmm. where things started to change for Anna, it was when she felt that she needed to go to the United States and specifically New York because she saw more opportunity to create something of her own there instead of just sort of being, you know, someone who admires other people's good works. I think this is where she first started to really think of herself as a founder, as an entrepreneur, as a creator, as a builder, as someone who wouldn't just appreciate the finer things in life, but would, who, who would actually create something that Mm -hmm. other people who appreciate nice things would admire. So there's really nothing problematic about her as a human being up to this point in terms of psychological pathology. Yes, she's arrogant. Yes, she's entitled. Yes, she's grandiose. Yes, she has big dreams, big plans and big goals, but a highly intelligent, highly creative person at that age and stage would probably be very much the same. I mean, mm-hmm. one of the th- I'm thinking about now as we're talking about this, Renita, if you happen to see, and I can't, th- is it Bohemian Rhapsody? Yes. Bohemian Rhapsody. First of all, I'm, I'm a huge Freddie Mercury fan. He was someone in a way like this. You remember the scene in the movie where he just goes up to this band who doesn't even know he exists and basically try in an alley, Yes. Tries to convince them that he is the absolute thing that they need to be a really great band. And they're thinking, who the hell is this guy? (laughs) Right. But that that level of confidence, that level of certainty, that level of determination and drive, I don't think is unusual for a highly intelligent, highly creative person who wants to live an amazing life. Once she Mm -hmm. gets to New York, things don't come as easily as she thinks they will. And this is where her personality pathology, I I think, really starts to develop. Now, clearly the seeds of it must have been there all along. Mm -hmm. I have worked with people with narcissistic personality disorder. I did some of my training through UCLA at a psychiatric hospital and had a client who was absolutely a sociopathic personality disorder. So I'm not unfamiliar with this, but how did it actually develop in her I think the combination of drive, ambition, creativity, clarity of purpose and vision were such dominating factors for her. In her mind, this ADF Mm -hmm. has to happen, whatever it takes. And that's where she starts down the criminal path because the whatever it takes route Mm. took some grand larceny, attempted grand larceny, theft of services, which ended up spending four years of her life in prison. In prison. Oh my gosh. As you talk about her, you bring to mind of actually a few other people I know who on the face of it are these dynamic entrepreneurs and people love them and they're social animals and they have this magnetic attraction, but downright narcissistic personalities, firstly, nasty. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you get to know them and, and all those things. In fact, my, as my husband and I were binge watching this show, Anna reminded him of one of these people that we know, and he kept drawing the parallels every episode. Mm-hmm. I was like, will you stop already? Like, let me enjoy the show. And you mentioned this right up front. You said she is complex. She is different. She's a sociopath. She's a criminal. She's a narcissist. Technically, she's all those things, but she's an entrepreneur and I wanted to learn from her. So 
this is it. What is it that we, you, I, and everyone else wants to learn about entrepreneurial success from personalities like this? Mm. Why? First and foremost, let me say this and be exceedingly clear about this. Most entrepreneurs are not sociopathic narcissists. Okay, good. Most are not. And it is definitely not a requirement. And there are highly successful entrepreneurs who don't have any of these traits. What is fascinating is that one in one of Anna Delvey's and Anna Sorkin's recent uh, interviews, she says that someone called her a sociopath and she considered it a compliment because the same term has been used about Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg. Hmm. Now, I am fascinated with entrepreneurs for several reasons. One is that they think differently. You cannot create new solutions to common problems without a different way of looking at things. Mm-hmm. You cannot read the label from inside the jar. You have to have an out of the box, out of the ordinary perspective, worldview, and way of solving problems to be able to create solutions that do not exist. Otherwise, someone else would have already thought of them. You think about Elon Musk. He's a fascinating character. He creates ideas and solutions to problems that most humans haven't even thought of. Mm -hmm. And he does so in the most amazing, creative way. Now, I think human beings are both fascinated by those who think differently And as a culture, we do an awful lot to try to convince everyone to conform to the norm. You think about public education, corporations, academia, it's all about conform to the norm. There are standardized tests, there are codes of conduct. You know, our job descriptions have core competencies, we have performance reviews, kids get grades. All of our culture, Western culture in particular, Mm -hmm. is about setting expectations, setting standards, and shaping human behavior to conform to the norm. The entrepreneur is an exception to that. They think differently. So, of course, we're fascinated by them. And, of course, we sort of vilify them, judge Mm -hmm. them, shame them, blame them. Now, some of them do have these tendencies. Some people are not only different in their perspective and their worldview. What makes someone a sociopath, Renita, is not that they think differently. It's that they lack empathy. Mm. This is the defining characteristic. And this is why people were fascinated, horrified, and judged Anna Sorkin because it wasn't so much that she had these grandiose dreams and plans and views, like what she wanted to attempt, I thought was amazing. Mm-hmm. The way she went about it was also very creative. I mean, what entrepreneurs are not leveraging other people's assets and resources to fund their startup? But the fact that she was willing to lie to people, mislead people, exploit personal relationships and Mm -hmm. friendships was where we begin to see the flaws in her psychological makeup is that she didn't have empathy 
for the people that she was taking advantage of when her friend Rachel was literally begging her. And again, this is a scene from the show. And as we know, not everything in the show is factual. Mm -hmm. Some things are, but we don't know which ones. Yep. Mm -hmm. But what we do know, because Rachel wrote a book about it, what we do know is that Rachel never had any intention of funding that that hotel bill holiday yeah holiday you know she had no intention of doing that she wouldn't have gone if that expectation had been made clear because up to that point anna paid for everything that's probably why they were friends a photo editor at vanity fair was not making a whole lot of money let's be honest right so she got swept up in this very glamorous lifestyle and then all of a sudden it was up to her to pay the bill but when she was literally begging her for the money back she was accused of being dramatic Now, in all of her interviews, Anna Sorkin said, I had every intention of paying people back once the foundation happened and was funded. In her mind, she was just moving resources around in service to her grand vision, which she was absolutely confident would succeed. And once it did, everybody she owed something to would get their money back. They just weren't being patient enough. So interesting. And and what you're saying sort of brings up incidences, similar sort of overlapping traits, perhaps, or characteristics that I'm seeing in some of the other shows about entrepreneurs, Theranos. And, yes, um, Elizabeth Travis Thomas. Kalnick, mm-hmm. exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Coming to fiction, Fiction is all about well, so many things, but, you know, a central key component of any good story is that protagonist and the more flawed they are, the more the audience will be attracted to them. I mean, whether, you know, whether you're talking about a book, a TV show, movie, whatever it might be. My question to you is, since you have said very, very eloquently explain to us the difference between a sociopath and let's say an entrepreneur with intent, let's call them that, is that the sociopath doesn't have the empathy, Mm -hmm. right? So why is it that we as the lay audience are so drawn to and fascinated by these flawed characters who have these not necessarily positive traits? Not everyone would agree with me on this, Renita, but I think there's two things going on here. One is, yes, we are drawn to flawed characters. And I think the reason for that is because when we're being honest with ourselves, really, really honest in a way that you probably wouldn't even confide to your very best friend, we all have impulses, Mm. thoughts, and emotions that are not so honorable. Mm. Every person has dark thoughts, has, you know, I mean, so many of us, women especially, are uh, feel guilty when they're being judgmental towards others because that's not nice. And yet the human brain is set up to be judgmental because the human brain is wired to make distinctions between things and to place judgments, right, wrong, good, bad, yes, no, for me, not for me on them. That's how the brain works. We Mm. all have the capacity. I believe after having been a psychotherapist for many years and now a coach for the last five years, I think every one of us 
has the potential to be arrogant, to be manipulative, to be an opportunist, to exploit mm -hmm. others, to be dishonest, to think more highly of ourselves than maybe we ought, and to believe that we deserve things that are really not within our reach based on our abilities and our efforts. I think it is part of the human condition that all of us recognize at least fleeting, intermittent thoughts. What's fascinating is that while we might have those thoughts, like just taking that pen off of, you know, it's a really nice pen, the co-working space, and doesn't seem to be attached to anyone. And I'm getting my backpack and I'm getting ready to go. They probably won't miss it. Who doesn't mm. have a fleeting thought like that? Or even something in, you know, like taking a towel or the robe from a hotel that you stayed at because of the monogram. Well, it's a memento. You know, who doesn't have thoughts of taking advantage or withholding information or puffing ourselves up? Let's talk about social media, right? Mm -hmm. Who doesn't try to position themselves in a way that's more favorable than the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So I think our fascination comes from maybe an unconscious awareness that even we, the viewer, mm. the reader, the listener, has some level of struggle with what you might call our dark side. And I think as a result of that, we are fascinated with those who not only have those thoughts and impulses, but who actually allow them to develop mm -hmm. into habits, behaviors, lifestyles, an entire personality. Mm -hmm. I think most people wonder, would I be capable of something like that? And we like watching these stories because mm -hmm. you're a storyteller, and you know what we really want is to see our similarity to them, but then to watch them fall so that we can be reminded that we, in fact, are not really like them at all. It reassures us of our own morality, mm. our own uh, integrity. It makes us feel better about ourselves. And it also reminds us that... Yeah, we probably don't want to take that pen the next time we have the opportunity. It's like it's like a moral code. And this has nothing to do with religion. It's, you know, one of the things I studied in graduate school at UCLA so many years ago was the development of morality. And most people who become criminals, their moral development and moral judgment stops at a certain level. There are these different levels of moral development. Most people's stops at the level of, I would do it, but I might get caught. Mm -hmm. That is true for most human beings. Now, those who have a moral development that goes beyond that goes to the level of, it doesn't matter if anybody knows I did it. I know I did it and I know it's wrong. That's like the highest level. Yeah. Most human beings will never get there. So, of course, we're fascinated with others who give in to those urges. Sometimes it's just so we can feel superior to them. I really want to ask, I mean, because you, you really put it so well. It's like this is why we watch that, because we see those traits or those possible potential traits in ourselves. 
would it be a stretch to say it almost humanizes us, but then it humanizes us back the other way because, oh no, I'm not going there and I feel good about how I am versus this character I've sort of unleashed. I'd love to ask you for the folks that, you know, cross that moral line and do it constantly, consistently through life. Is there a certain age or stage that that sets in or a set of circumstances under which they sort of go that way for good? Is it easy to even categorize? I'm really glad of the timing of this interview, Renita, because my husband and I ended up watching something where there's a program in California, I think in the desert, Lancaster, California, where prisoners at a, I think it's a low risk facility are participating in a program with these dogs. I don't remember the name of the program, unfortunately, but they are bringing these dogs in to this prison and the prisoners are learning how to train the dogs to be obedient and to perform certain tasks. Some of the dogs actually become skilled enough to become service animals for vets with PTSD and so forth. But what was so beautiful, and I I literally, I'm not a softy, I don't cry very much, but I was literally in tears by the end of this program. We both were because of so many of the men in this facility who were participating in the program and were matched with a dog and went through the training. I'm thinking, wow, this would be a great skill for them to have when they leave. Mm -hmm. Because there's a lot of dogs that go to shelters because the owners can't handle them. And what if you could hire someone like this and so forth? Most of the men that were featured in this piece, Renita, had been in prison for 20 plus years. And the majority of them were convicted of crimes when they were just barely out of their teens. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. your question reminds me of, we're now seeing them in their 40s, 50 years old. And how they're talking about how their life changed as a result of being in prison, how they have literally matured from a dumb teenager who did stupid, reckless things to now a middle-aged man and the healing that was brought about as a result of this program with the dogs. And I love dogs. I loved the idea of these prisoners having this rehabilitative and very meaningful therapeutic experience. But what I was most captivated by is how much their personalities had evolved from the time they were incarcerated until now. Mm-hmm. And none of them would have made the same choices. And again, this was, this was a highly produced piece. And of course they wanted, you know, people to be sympathetic and, and support this program and so forth, but I'm a pretty good judge of character. This is what I do for a living. Right. Mm-hmm. People don't fool me very often. And I also had an abusive childhood. So I acquired this trait very early in life and it has served me well. But when I heard these stories from these men, I thought, you know, a lot of us do dumb shit when we're young. Yes. High school, Mm -hmm. college, early adulthood. I have three adult children. We talk about this stuff all the time. The choices that we make based on our level of immaturity, the people we've surrounded ourselves with at certain stages of life, uh, we would not make those choices later. So even recent interviews with Anna Sorokin, and obviously she's had media training, but she is now saying, I, I would not 
take those same actions now. Mm -hmm. What's also true is she says, I still consider myself an entrepreneur. I still want to build something. I still have basically big dreams, big goals, and big plans. I just wouldn't go about it in the same way. So I think maturity, Mm -hmm. you know, it's really hard to say whether that maturity came as a result of being incarcerated or whether she might have matured into a person who has greater capacity to understand the impact of her behaviors on others. If she hadn't been caught, there's no way for us to know. Yeah, there is no way for us to know. And that in and of itself opens up the imagination to so much more. I mean, what you say is so right. I mean, it just takes some living, just being here on planet earth, going through experiences, even if they might be in jail, perhaps just to learn and to reflect and, It's like when your kids say to you, how did you know that? How did you know to make that decision? It's like you made that decision pretty quickly. I couldn't have done that or I would have done something else. It's just like you just needed to be around for a while (laughs) to learn, right? Again, that reminds me of fiction because even when we have these whatever so-called flawed or villainous or whatever you want to call them personalities who are our protagonists, they definitely have a human side and as storytellers, you really want to make the audiences root for them because you want to see them doing more, doing well, doing, you know, being successful. So I hope she does come out and build that business. I'd be fascinated to see what she can do. I agree. One one of the things I think is also important to her story is she's an entrepreneur and a feminist. Mm -hmm. Because one of the things that she said repeatedly, at least in the fictionalized version we call Inventing Anna. And we can credit Shonda Rhimes with some really brilliant writing as well as casting and acting. But I think one of the things she said that I kept turning to my husband and say, are you hearing this? Is that men fail upward all the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If I was a man instead of a young woman, would this be happening in the way that it's happening? And I think that, you know, were we harsher with her because she is a woman, then we would be with men. One of the things I talk about a lot is ambition shaming of women, Mm -hmm. because I think that we admire, we honor, we applaud, we endorse, we support, we encourage ambition in males. Yes. But girls are supposed to be modest. We are supposed to accept what is offered. Women don't negotiate for salaries, but men do. So why is this? And one of the things that Anna Sorokin really railed against is what she saw as the unfairness of her gender and mm-hmm. how she was being perceived, as well as ageism. Now, usually I'm thinking about and talking about ageism as in being an older woman at this point in my life and, and facing ageism in that respect. But the ageism that she was subjected to is that she was very young. young. And a young woman is usually not taken very seriously. A young 
attractive woman is especially not taken very seriously. And I think one of the things that she was most enraged by is that in order to spare her from a very serious jail sentence, her attorney's positioning of her defense was that it never would have happened. She was never going to get that money. She was never going to build that foundation. She was never going to get those six floors of that building. Mm-hmm. It was This was a fantasy of a silly, young, naive little girl. And that was how he wanted to defend her so that everyone would think, yeah, this is just a joke. And and you know, let's slap her wrist and she can go on her way. And she was enraged by that because even if it meant spending the rest of her life in prison, what she wanted people to know is I am a founder. I am an entrepreneur. I am building a business. I did almost make it. That was more important to her than anything. And that was the most striking thing to me is when your entrepreneurial identity is so well-developed that the thing that matters most is not whether you succeed or fail at that entrepreneurial venture, but how you are perceived by others. I mean, those scenes where she's crying because she's not getting money from the banks and the other things. And she says that they just don't take me seriously because I'm, you know, a girl and it happens over and over again. It's in many of the episodes. I am really interested in seeing where she comes out and how we can go from inventing Anna to reinventing Anna. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't that be fantastic? I'm going to keep my eye on her because it started with being fascinated with the actress, Julia Garner. But now I am genuinely fascinated by the person of Anna Sorokin. So I'm going to keep my eye on her and I'd love to see her succeed legitimately. Yep. That makes two of us. Thank you so much, Diane. It's been such a pleasure to have you on the show. And I feel like I could talk with you all day until you give me a timeout. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much. You bet. That was Diane Wingert, a therapist turned mindset coach and host of the Driven Woman podcast. And this is the True Fiction Project. I'm your host, Renita Hora. And now to the premise of the True Fiction Project, which of course is to create fiction out of nonfiction. Shifting Weight, read and written by Parker James. Flip like one, two, three, fly around the world down a new Delhi. Yeah, while all of a sudden they want to act like we friends, probably because you see me riding in a brand new friends like Zoom. Dude, I don't know what the hell he's saying. Just Bonnet said with slight annoyance to James in the new Delhi Tuk Tuk. The driver was screaming at the sea of noise in the crowded streets. Darling, I thought you'd been here for over a year. Don't you speak Indian? James said through a thick Australian accent. Just sighed through the thick New Delhi heat. Okay, two things. One, they speak Hindi here. And two, I've been in Thailand for the past year, not Delhi. James looked confused and hesitated to respond. I speak Thai, not Hindi. James gave her a dirty look. I set this meeting up for you with the king of the smugglers, Mr. Singh. It's simple. I get my cut and that's it. If you have a problem, I can always call it off. 
James glared at Jess and looked out the window, gazing into the sweltering city. You know, for a girl with an NA chip, it's surprising to see you in this line of work. Jess laughed. Call it what it is. We sell poison to people who have given up on life. Just an observation. What business with you Americans, eh? James responded. Correct. What was it? James asked. What? Jess responded. What was your gear? For me, I like a bit of smick. What's your poison? Blow. Now that fit. Shut up, we're here. Jess cut him off as they stepped out of the tuk-tuk. They arrived at a nondescript building in a random neighborhood. Jess gave three sharp raps on the door. A window opened up to show eyes with thick black makeup. Mrs. Bonnet? Yes, we're here to meet with, uh, Malak. Of course. The window slammed shut and the clanking scream of several locks sounded off before the door opened. Jess and James sauntered into the house. Both their eyes struggled to adjust to the infinite darkness. Jess looked around for the doorman, but there were only the ghosts of old footsteps. Uh, Mr. Singh? It's me. Jess Bonnet? Jess asked to the darkness. There was no response, only a single dim light bulb illuminating an older man lounging in a wingback chair beneath the light. Mrs. Bonnet, I am Mr. Singh's partner. He was unable to join today. The older man stated with a smile. Would it kill you to let in some sunshine? I didn't realize we were dealing with vampires. <laughs> James laughed. The older man's smile dropped from his face. He gave a gentle snap with his fingers and Jess's ears exploded into pure white noise. The side of her face was splashed with a thick, warm liquid. She turned her head to see the doorman's pistol breathing out a curl of smoke. Her fears were realized as she looked down to see James's head oozing blood all over her shoes. What the hell? Jess screamed. The older man smiled again. Mrs. Bonnet, I'm quite disappointed that you would choose to partner with something so disrespectful. Jess felt her feet and hands go completely numb. Listen, just, just take whatever you want. You know, it always surprises me how easily you Westerners trust us. Have you considered that people can lie? The older man gave a nod to the doorman. Jess took off her backpack full of the rest of her money, her passport, and a kilo sample. Letting it fall to the ground, she sent daggers with her eyes towards the older man. Pick up the bag and pass it to the man who murdered your friend. Jess never took her eyes off the older man, and she squatted down to retrieve the backpack. Hurry up! Jess didn't respond, only moved slower. Dorman took a step closer and screamed at Jess to move faster. The moment Jess was back in a standing position, Jess swung her backpack with full force of the pistol. The sudden attack caused the doorman to fire, sending a round into the single light bulb. Sparks showered the room as darkness returned. Jess's backpack was ripped from her hand as she narrowly escaped the doorman's grip and kicked open the door into the blinding streets. Jess was out of the door and sprinting down the street before her eyes had fully adjusted. She collapsed somewhere in an alley in the dense city. Wiping the remains of James from her face with her filthy shirt, she gave a long internal scream. Jess slumped down to the ground and pulled out her phone to make a call she wished to never make. <laughs> Answer! Jess screamed into the ringing phone. Uh, hello? The voice sounded groggy. Hey, Alice. Oh no, no. You do not get to drop off the face of the earth and then just say hi. I haven't talked to you in three years. And you just randomly call me from a weird number at four in the morning? No, Jess. 
The call dropped, and Jess furiously hit redial. No, Jess, I'm your sister. You don't- Jess cut her off. Alice, just listen. I'm sorry for disappearing again. I know my last, uh, rehab stint didn't go super great, but please just listen. I'm in a really bad way. When are you not? All you do is take. I have tried to help you, but you won't take it. I'm hanging up. Alice, please. I'm two years clean. Listen, I'm in India, and I just got robbed. I need you to wire me $2,000. Please, I'm begging you. Alice didn't respond. Alice? Alice! Jess pleaded. Alice let out a long sigh. <sighs> you know, Jess, out of all the you've told me over the years, this really takes the cake. You just got robbed in India? Sure, and I'm the king of Albuquerque. Go to hell, Alice screamed as she hung up. Jess felt her heart skip several beats and fall through the center of the earth. As his hands were clenching, a sharp stab of angry electricity jolted up her spine. Her brain was screaming at her to find a fresh bag of coke. She had a dealer in the city. She could have it in less than 30 minutes. Her hand trembled as she started dialing the number for her guy. Hello? The dealer answered. Jess couldn't speak at first, but soon found her courage. Hey, hey, sorry. Um, listen, my horse ran away. Ah, oh, for God's sake. It's gonna cost you extra. Anything else? Yeah, do you still have that, uh, number for the papers guy? I, uh, lost my passport. And that new horse is gonna need to be on credit. The dealer didn't respond for what seemed like years. Yes, for both, but we're gonna need to talk first. Tell Mr. Singh I'm not happy. After taking far too many deep breaths, she rummaged around her pockets for any rupees left and got in a tuk-tuk to the dealer's house. A short hour later, she was banging on her dealer's apartment door. The dealer ushered her inside. Before Jess could even explain, she broke down. Tears soaked everything. Her dealer's annoyance transformed into empathy as Jess retold the story the best she could. As Jess dried her tears and watched the rest of James off her body, she began formulating a plan to get the new kilo of heroin back to the States. In the end, it didn't really matter how. Not even Jess believed it as she was throwing the heroin-filled suitcase into the back of her friend's car outside the Seattle airport. As they drove along towards downtown, her phone lit up with a message from a familiar number. Good job. Sorry about James. I had no need for someone who planned on being their best customer. We'll be in contact. Sing. Thank you for listening to The True Fiction Project with Renita Hora. Be sure to subscribe to the newsletter to receive more inspiring stories showing how fiction is born from our everyday experiences. For more information, visit www.truefictionproject.com. Thank you.